Welcome back to Amplifier. In our last episode, we heard from international students at Emory who shared how education has shaped their perspectives on climate change, including through the classes they've taken on campus. Today, we're hearing an episode produced for one of those climate change courses. In this week's student-produced episode, three Emory students, Leah Hartung, Jackson Pence, and Ellie Solser, discuss the state of the green energy transition in the United States. They interview a variety of experts throughout the renewable energy landscape, and they explore the move from coal to solar power. There's a lot of ground to cover in this episode, so let's get started. Hello, and welcome to Carbon Capture, a podcast about decarbonizing the American economy. My name is Jackson Pence, and I'm here with fellow Emory University environmental science majors Ellie Sulser and Leah Hartung. This podcast was produced as a final project for the fall 2021 section of Climate Change and Society, an Emory University course taught by Dr. Ari Saikawa about the intersection of climate science, communication, and policy. In today's episode, we discuss the state of the green energy transition in America, specifically moving from coal to solar power. We've arranged a variety of interviews with experts throughout the renewable energy landscape, so be sure to stick around for what's sure to be an interesting conversation. From floods to air pollution to wildfire smoke to severe droughts, climate change has reached the United States. If we want to prevent the worst effects of the climate disaster, we must decarbonize now and we must decarbonize rapidly. With coal being a finite and dirty resource and the cost of solar falling, the transition from coal to solar is happening, but not at the rate our planet needs. In order to better understand this complex issue, this podcast aims to synthesize the business, consumer, and environmental justice perspectives. In our research, we found that these and other facets of the energy transition are often siloed into separate discussions, but we believe that it is essential to take a more comprehensive approach. Each piece of this puzzle provides its own important lessons, which also have useful intersectional implications to consider as we work to accelerate the coal to solar transition. To better understand the role of the private sector in the green energy transition, I had the privilege of interviewing Ryan Johnson, the North American sustainability lead for the global consulting firm Accenture. Ryan has more than 16 years of experience in renewable power supply planning and procurement, and currently focuses on solving sustainability and net zero issues for large corporations in the United States. Here are some of the highlights from our conversation. Ryan, how concerned are your private sector clients about their ability to purchase renewable energy. And when making that decision, how do they decide whether to own the renewable asset themselves or purchase power from a central vendor? Our clients are very concerned about this. All industries are talking with us. So oil and gas, pharma, manufacturing, and everything else under the sun, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter the industry that you're in. Everyone has a carbon reduction goal or a renewable energy goal that they want to hit by a certain date. And the question is, how do you hit that? And what transactions do you do? And you've hit on some of those questions, which are, do you want to own a facility or do you want to be just an off taker in a power purchase agreement? And those those answers are different by client. I'd say... For the most part, renewable energy is purchased through an offtake agreement, like a purchase power agreement, because these corporate clients in particular are not in the business of owning a renewable asset and don't want to be in that business. So they're just going to buy the energy 
from that facility and get the renewable energy certificates that come with that energy. That's what that certificate is what you can use to show that's the proof that you need to show that you have reduced your emissions. And that's what you can report to the, the reporting agencies to prove that you're making these reductions. Uh, there are no, there's not a, a bank of projects that I can tap into uh, and suddenly get my, my clients renewable energy. All projects in 2021 are new, which means I need to sign a PPA this year so that that project mm -hmm. will need to be built over the next two years, and then I will get my renewable energy. So the supply is actually constrained because that supply needs transmission lines and needs infrastructure to deliver not only to the grid, but some of our clients that want it delivered straight to their facilities. And how important has increased consumer value for sustainability, where individuals have shown a willingness to change purchasing preferences based on corporate sustainability measures been to your clients who are considering switching to renewable energy? It's very important. So let's let's take a, I won't say the name, but a high profile auto manufacturer, high quality, high quality automobile manufacturer. Those customers of that auto manufacturer have a particular taste. They want a high quality experience. They want to know that the car that they purchased was manufactured and developed using sustainable practices and has at least some percentage renewable uh, power as part of that mix. So I will say, yes, higher quality brands, and I'll name a few, Delta Airlines, Disney, BMW, that customer base has higher expectations for sustainability than some of the lower quality brands who I won't name, but maybe their customers just don't, don't have the money or don't feel like that's important for them. And I absolutely agree that the higher quality the brand is and the customer class that comes with that, they have a higher expectation for sustainability. And in essence, those brands have to act in accordance with their customer base. So how much have your clients considered a distributed solar strategy, maybe putting solar panels on warehouses or over parking lots in order to offset some of their energy costs? Uh, yeah, in the Southeast, on-site solar is, is uh, not prevalent. And that's because our electricity costs in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi are very low. And it does not make sense for the most part to put something on your roof that offsets a very low priced prop, you know, commodity. Mm -hmm. And the payback on that is very long, too long for most people. Um, so in states like Hawaii, California, New York, they have very high electricity rates. And so it, it's easy to make the decision to go renewable in those types of states. Um, you know, here recently, natural gas has has price, um, you know, I think it's $6 per MMBTU. And the higher natural gas prices go, the more people will look to uh, renewables as a way to offset that cost or hedge uh, the, the prices going even higher uh, in the future. And that's a real concern for a lot of people. Um, in addition to that challenge, an on-site system will only 
contribute a small amount to that facility's offset. So, so let's just say, you know, as you're flying over Atlanta, coming into the airport, you do see a lot of warehouse roof space that you ask yourself, I ask myself, why aren't those covered in solar? Well, for the most part, those warehouses and other facilities, manufacturing facilities um, have a huge load and putting solar on the roof will account most likely for something like five to 10% of that facility's consumption. And that's just not material enough to go through the effort of putting something on your roof. So aside from the low cost of substitutes, what are other challenges that some of your corporate clients face when trying to procure renewable energy? Oh, and the other thing, if you enter into a renewable transaction, that is most likely going to be a long-term transaction. And corporates don't like long-term transactions. And so there has to be some middle ground there. For the most part, renewable PPAs are 10, 15, 20 years in, in term length. And that's totally outside what most corporates are used to, which is maybe a 12-month deal, maybe a 24-month fixed-price deal, or I'm just buying on the market every month, right? That's a totally different paradigm. And corporates just aren't used to that. And some corporates just can't get on board with a long-term deal because their businesses change too much over a of 20 year period. And so am I really going to have the load that I have in 2021 for 20 years? And how, how am I going to divest, you know, certain assets over that time where I'm at, am I going to increase my load over that time? And, and so a, tw- a 20 year term on a PPA just doesn't match their business. With that, I'd like to extend a special thank you to Ryan Johnson for his willingness to contribute to the podcast. Some key takeaways I got from our conversation were one, The low cost of fossil fuels is a serious obstacle preventing businesses from making the switch to renewable energy. Two, businesses need energy providers that operate on their same timelines. The future of renewable energy must be agile, with shorter timelines and PPAs if we are to incentivize businesses to get on board. And three, companies do care about the importance their customers place on sustainability. As consumers, it is our responsibility to vote with our wallets and to show businesses that doing good for the planet also means doing well financially. To address the consumer side of this issue, I had the opportunity to interview Grant Smith, the Senior Energy Policy Advisor at the Environmental Working Group. EWG's mission is to empower consumers with breakthrough research to make informed choices about the products and services we depend on, which is why I was interested in interviewing Mr. Smith for this podcast. Mr. Smith researches and reports on the transition to clean renewable energy, and he directs EWG's advocacy for equitable and transparent electricity utility policy at the federal and state levels. In evaluating the different avenues that consumers can take to make their own energy transitions, whether through distributed rooftop solar or utility scale solar, what are some of the biggest hurdles they might find? In terms of the consumer, I mean, one of the biggest roadblocks for the consumer is the utility. And, uh, but utilities have always argued that the people that use the least amount of power are the problem. And uh, so in the past, it was the low income customers problem. Now it's the people with solar because their demand has dropped from using power that the utility owns. So it has to do with who owns the power and they don't own customer owned rooftop solar. What has been most effective in advancing the deployment of solar energy and how can consumers get involved? Now, the, the whole, uh, the, the solar build out from the customer side has been driven by public policy, right? Mm-hmm. And either advanced 
making inroads or now, you know, now you have all this pushback from utilities. And uh, so the, the consumer, you know, should be or attempting to be in, uh, engaged in these discussions because mm -hmm. if you want a power grid that's efficient, less costly, affordable, you're going to get a have to go to a distributed system. And for instance, uh, Vote Solar and another organization did a study and uh, found that, you know, if you focused in on primarily a distributed system rather than just relying on utility scale renewables, I mean, the cost savings would be $120 billion, you know, over mm -hmm. a number of years. So it's least cost, you know, obviously it's a, an effective way to address climate change in California also, uh, you know, that everybody's talking about resiliency, electrifying buildings, reducing natural gases and all this. And these uh, systems can provide ride-through capability during fire season, which means when the PG&E or other utilities there say, we're gonna have to do rolling blackouts to prevent a, power, prevent a fire, they can maintain a, you know, power mm -hmm. in their home. And- it's oh, uh, amazing. And um, even during blackouts, they can there can be they can sustain power to their homes. Which you know, when these blackouts, you know, <laughs> just as an example, it doesn't sound that important, but you know, people lose all their groceries in the refrigerator, right? <laughs> so, yeah, which is a big cost. So if you just look it at it, it would be like, what? You know, uh, you got to pay for all this now because. PG&E and others have decided to shut down the power system so we can avoid a fire. So there's all sorts of advantages and yeah. it's all being driven by policy. One of the biggest incentives was the 30% federal tax credit for solar. Right. I used it. No, I have solar. I'm one of the few people in my neighborhood that have solar. <laughs> but, you know, it makes a huge difference and that's what they're right. trying to get uh, established and what I, I'm not sure it was in the infrastructure bill or in this next bill it could be in the next bill extension. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that consumers should try to participate more in the policy making around utilities. Can you expand on that? The consumer is at the mercy of these utility proceedings which are very difficult to engage in. Not many people understand them. They're incredibly esoteric in many ways which isn't helpful. And <laughs> then you know, you have utility influence peddling and excessive influence over state legislature. And even though the vast majority of public doesn't want it, I mean, you can the utility influence is such that it's very difficult to leverage that in the other direction, right? So, yeah, it's a very difficult situation. What would you say is the overall goal in expanding solar from the consumer perspective? And there's a, essentially across the board support matter where you are on the political spectrum for solar and storage right. and customer ownership, right? And getting having a customer benefit out of it, right? <laughs> so, right. So you're so you're uh, fairly compensated for the investment you're making in the utility system, right? I mean, right. What, because the more people that do this, when you have policies that really support community solar. One of the problems with community solar is the policy behind it is mm -hmm. not strong enough. And the more people do this, the more savings you create for everybody, not just right. for yourself. And the, the cheaper the system is. 
So the same with yeah. energy efficiency. And you maximize the benefits by allow by enabling it, not blocking it. Looking ahead, do you think most people are now aware of their solar options, or is there still a communications problem we should be working to resolve? I'm not sure to what extent most people understand solar. Yeah. I really don't like for net metering, just personally running into folks, most people don't understand net metering. Yeah. And most folks don't understand what utilities are doing to them. I mean, these other right. the organizations I mentioned, they get one of the things that people react viscerally to when they understand it is these high fixed charges. Mm-hmm. That's an easy one to get across to people. Yeah. <laughs> and they're not very happy. Right? And, uh, you know, the extent of, uh, you know, the, these organizations spreading the word to the to the extent that people understand it, they're supportive. I don't know anybody mm-hmm. who would be opposed to solar and storage. I've never right. run into anybody who said, oh no, that would be a horrible thing. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Smith's final point was that essentially everyone is in favor of solar for a combination of economic energy independence and energy resilience reasons, not to mention because of the environmental benefits. But what really stuck out to me from this interview was the importance he placed on public policy in response to my questions about the role of consumers. Whereas Jackson concluded his segment by highlighting our ability to vote with our wallets, my biggest takeaway was that our power as consumers, when it comes to accelerating the transition through our sources of renewable energy, seems to depend in large part on the policies in place, like whether there is net metering. And unfortunately, it can be difficult to get involved in the decision-making processes behind these policies but it is our responsibility to engage ourselves, which brings us to the importance of grassroots advocacy, especially to ensure environmental justice. For our final interview, we wanted to talk with someone that is deeply impacted by the coldest solar transition. I had the pleasure of speaking with Eduardo Flores, a 19-year-old environmental justice organizer from Waukegan, Illinois. So I first started my journey into environmental justice through my love of the environment. I've been doing environmental programs my whole life. During the week of the 2019 global youth climate strikes, I wanted to be involved with that too. And I started organizing a climate strike at my school. When talking to some of my friends while organizing, I found out about Clean Power Lake County, a local group that is focused on trying to get clean energy and shut down the coal plant in my town, which I knew was there, but I didn't know how bad it was. And I quickly got involved and learned about all the horrible things in my community. It's a town of 90,000 community residents, mostly immigrant, low-income, BIPOC. I learned about EPA Superfund sites. I learned about the release of a toxic cancerous class 1 carcinogen at the Lenox side into our air. I learned about the coal ash ponds down at the lakefront. I learned so much about how polluted my town was that I decided to get involved with the environmental justice movement. It's kind of hard to go have fun and enjoy yourself, have a fun time at the beach when you look north and you see coal stacks over there. And then there's coal ash ponds. I start to think, oh, like, are the coal ash ponds, are there toxins being released into the water? Water? Am I swimming in polluted water? You start to get all those worries and start to get anxious and stuff. What benefits would the transition from coal to solar have for your community? The transition from coal to solar is a really beneficial thing to our community. It's such a 
be getting electricity, knowing that it's also poisoning you for me, poisoning the water, the land, our breathing air. One in three kids here have asthma or asthma-like symptoms. As a kid, I remember whenever we were running around the, the playground, the, you know, running around in the backyard, we would always have to be careful, especially with whenever we had a friend who had asthma. Because you never really knew when an asthma attack was going to hit. You just kind of had to always be prepared. It was such a normal thing. As I got older, I just realized asthma isn't as prevalent in other areas. And the reason for that is the coal plant on our lakefront. It's so close to us and it leads to so many cardiovascular diseases and health problems. You know, people can't breathe, especially with when, when you get older. Being able to get cheap electricity from solar farms is way better for the community's health as compared to, you know, the dirty fossil fuel energy that we've known for so long. Also, solar can be used on these brownfield sites. These brownfield sites can be redeveloped into solar farms with lots of solar panels that provide clean, cheap, renewable electricity for our community and isn't as harmful as the coal ash ponds, isn't horrible for our air. You know, we don't get to see those unsightly coal stacks in our community. During winter, you know, we don't get to see all that smoke coming from our lakefront, which is honestly ugly and disgusting. I know a bill, Clean Power Lake County, has been fighting for for years. The Climate and Equitable Jobs Act, also known as CEJA, recently passed in Illinois. It has been hailed as the most equitable climate legislation in the nation. What are the most important aspects of the act for ensuring a just transition in your community? Yeah, so the just transition aspect of CEJA is a really important thing for us. Waukegan has had a painful history of corporations polluting our community, you know, making their money and then just leaving, leaving us with their masks to clean up. And that's what caused our five Superfund sites. We don't need a sixth Superfund site there where the coal plant is. And so having a just transition, having provisions that would provide tax-based replacement are a really important thing. The coal plant pays taxes. And so losing out on that would be really destructive for our community. You know? And then CJ also provides funding to redevelop that land. And so being able to redevelop that into to a park or maybe into a solar farm, redeveloping in into a area designated for, for wildlife, uh, that would be cool. CEJA also provides things like a workforce hub where community members can learn how to work on a job. They have the training they need to ensure they can do these jobs. Workers that are working there right now at the coal plant, they can get that retraining they need to be able to work in these new jobs. Traditionally, the solar industry has been very white male dominated. And so having provisions that would help people of color, women into this industry is a really key aspect towards creating generational wealth that allows people who aren't white and male into this industry. And do you have hope that your community can move past this toxic legacy? Yeah, I do have hope that, you know, we're able to get a just transition for Waukegan. As Waukegan is right now, not that many people come back. That's for a bunch of different reasons, but I'm hoping the health problems and the environmental justice aspect isn't one of them. I know the potential of what Waukegan can be. I know it's a beautiful community 
and there's so much to offer, but a lot of people just they don't have the same vision. I want to come back and protect the place I love. I want to see it thrive. I want to see the vision I have in my head become reality. I want the best for the this place I love and I've called home my whole life. On that note, I would like to extend my gratitude to Eduardo for being willing to talk with me so candidly about his community. Even with five EPA Superfund sites, two coal ash ponds, and a coal plant, Eduardo has hope that industrial pollution and fossil fuels will not define his city. From turning these Superfund sites into brownfield solar or putting solar panels on land that is so polluted it cannot be used for anything else, to tax-based replacement, to training programs for coal workers, the transition from coal to solar has the ability to be a positive one for fossil fuel workers and communities. As we transition to our clean energy economy, we must not forget who will be disproportionately impacted by this transition and who has already been disproportionately impacted by environmental pollution. Always remember, while transition is inevitable, justice is not. With that, we want to thank you for listening to our podcast today. Too often, issues involved with renewable energy are discussed in silos, so we aim to give you three different perspectives on the transition from coal to solar. We hope that you enjoyed our podcast. Interviews for this podcast were conducted by Jackson Pence, Ellie Sulcer, and Leah Hartung. Editing was done by Leah Hartung. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. You can learn more about us on our website and YouTube channel, Emory Climate Talks. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes as we continue to explore climate action on campus at Emory University.